All right, so Revelation chapter 10, we're going, to, uh, we're going to pick up our study as we look at this mighty angel. The Bible calls him a mighty, magnificent, powerful angel, so powerful in John's vision that he has one foot in the sea and one foot on the earth, and he raises his hand, probably his right hand, and swears an oath to Almighty God, and he has a little book uh, in his hand. The Bible calls it a little scroll that is bittersweet. And so today as we walk through, and by the way, if you're a guest, what we're doing at Great Hills, it's very much an anomaly in in church life today to actually preach the Bible and to go through books of the Bible, and yet we're very firmly committed to that at Great Hills. We want to uh, honor Christ and honor His Word and teach His Word. And so the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation is, I tell you, it is one of the most amazing pieces of literature that you will ever study. Even Even a secular person, a person that has no real faith, if they read this book, they will find that it is absolutely fascinating. So we read it through the lens, through the eyes of faith, because we know its author, and it speaks profoundly to us as it is this apocalyptic literature, which means it talks about the unveiling, the end times, how this world is going to be consummated, and how God is going to close out history, and it is a fascinating, fascinating story. And so today we pick up with Revelation chapter 10. I'll read, I'll read the whole chapter, and yet we're only going to focus on the latter part of the, uh, of the chapter because we looked at the first part uh, last, last week. So John says in this vision, I, I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. This angel is clothed with a cloud, has a rainbow on his head. His face was like the sun, his feet like pillars of fire. He had a little book open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he cried with a loud voice. Um, last week, this, this, this verb here is when a lion roars, maukamai, it, it it's an onomatopoeia poetic language. It sounds like it is. It is a roaring lion of a voice. And when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, John says, I was about to write down what I heard uh, from this thunderous, these thunderous voices emanating probably from the throne of God itself. And, and John's going to, the revelator, John's going to record it, but he hears this voice from heaven and says, John, don't write down what you have just heard. Uh, Do not write them. Okay? Now when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up the things which the seven things uttered and do not write. I think we just read that. Okay, amen. The angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised up his hand to heaven, all right? And he swore by him who lives forever, and he makes this oath. And he makes it to the God who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and the things that are in it, and the sea and the things that are in it. That there should be chronos, that's where we get this English word chronology or chronological. And a lot of times we translate this word time, but a better translation within the context would be the word delay this mighty angel, and he says that the delay is no more. The the end is about to be consummated. But in the last days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mysterion, the mystery of God would be finished, 
as He declared to His servants the prophets. In other words, all those hundreds of years of Old Testament prophetic prophetic voices, whether they be major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, major just being major because of the, the length of their writings, as well as the minor prophets such as Daniel and Amos and and Obadiah, and Haggai, and Zechariah, and Zephaniah, all those minor prophets, and and they have proclaimed for ages and ages, and now John the Revelator pulls all this together, and when 11.15 happens, when Revelation 11.15, when the seventh trumpet sounds, he says the delay is no more. With rapidity, with just this alacrity of movement, things will be consummated, and the end of the world as we know it will happen. Wow. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, Go take the little book which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. Now, what if you were John? What if, what if God in this vision says, You see that mighty, awesome, fierce, angelic being with a rainbow over his head and standing in the clouds and with one foot here and one foot there? Go up to him and tell him, You want. You want the little book that resides in his hand. And I love John. He says, in this vision, he says, so I went to the angel, and I said to him, give me the little book. And the angel said to him, take and eat it, and it will be in your stomach. It will become bitter, but it will be as sweet as honey in your mouth. And then John says, I took the little book out of the angel's hand, and I ate it, and sure enough, this little scroll, this little book, this ominous mysterious book. What is, it, what is it? We don't know. Nobody knows. I'm going to share with you what I think a little bit of what it may mean, but nobody really knows. But there's this little scroll in the hand of this big angel, and it's small enough for John to be able to eat it and digest it. And sure enough, he said, as soon as I ate it, it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And then watch this, verse 11. John, you must prophesy again. Now, that is the operative word. Church family, I want you to get this word again, okay? It it is a word of recommission. It is a word of repetition. It is a word of, uh, of John, you you, you can't quit. You you can't back down. You've got to keep going forward. You can't stop. You've got to persevere. And again and again, you must speak and prophesy about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. So, in in your outline there, we've presented for you in your worship guide, we look at the word reassurance. And, and, and really, Revelation chapter 10 is known as the grand interlude. It is known as the great pause of the book of Revelation. Uh, we are almost halfway through this great book, and chapter 11 will be the halfway mark. But right here in chapter 10, it's like heaven pauses. It allows us to catch our breath in the midst of all the, the the judgments, you know, the, the seals, and now we have these trumpets, and, and the bold judgments are about to happen, these seven times three, these twenty-one, seven successive judgments. But it seems like right in the middle there, God gives us a chance just to catch our breath and to pause a minute, and, and that's what we see happening here, this divine pause. So we looked last time at the angel, we described the angel, and then we looked at verse six, the announcement or the oath, the solemn swearing of this oath that this angel gives to Almighty God. And and it really is a moment. It is a special apocalyptic moment because what, what is happening here is this angel says, I swear allegiance to the one who created all things, whether there are things in the heavens above 
whether they're things on the earth below or in the sea underneath, God Almighty, well watch, it's very important. If God is the originator and He is the creator of everything, then surely this same deity has the power to consummate everything. You know, when, when I study the book of Revelation, and I know there are many mysterious things, and there's big angels, and there's little books, and there's all these analogies and metaphors and, and similes, and all of these things happening, but when you boil it down to its root essence, when you look at the book of Revelation, this is what it says to me, that God is in control, and God is a God of grace. You say, how can you conclude that God is in control? Well, you watch it and you read it, you'll see everything just lining up precisely the way God wants it to. And you say, but Brother Danny, when I read Revelation, I see anything but grace. All I see is a bunch of judgment, a bunch of outpouring of the wrath of God on planet Earth. And you know what? It is very gracious of God to tell us what He's going to do so we'll have time to repent and get right with Him. Isn't that amazing? He, he is a God of grace. He is a God of, of mercy. So we're going to jump right into this. It's just like, oh, there's just so much here. I'm trying to, I'm trying to, uh, to go fast, but, but not too fast. So let, let's just pick up with verse 7. How's that? So in verse 7, he talks about this sounding of the trumpet that is about to happen, and that would be 11, chapter 11, verse 15. And when this happens, he says, the mystery of God would be finished. Now, the Greek word there is mysterion. And we transliterate that word right out of Greek into English, and it literally means truths that God has hidden in the past that will be revealed in its time. Let, let me say that again. It's a great definition John MacArthur gives us. Listen to this. Mysterion in the Bible are truths that God has revealed or has hidden, but He will reveal in His own time. The mystery of God, all these prophets have been prophesying, and all these great, cataclysmic, magnificent events that are about to transpire. When you read in the Old Testament, all these prophets, they, they talked about an ominous, foreboding, amazing day of God. There's coming a, a day of judgment where Almighty God will say, enough is enough, and God will, God will require. God will require payment. He will cast down His punishment upon planet Earth. But He's warning us. He's, he's telling us everything in Earth is just seems like it's screaming out, look people, look at this Earth. Look at the hatred. Look at the violence. Look at the sex trafficking. Look at the, look at the murders. Look at the rapes. Look at all these things that are happening on planet Earth. And God is watching, and God will judge. He is Almighty God, and He will not in any way acquit the wicked. He will have a day of recompense. And all these, these prophets, they talked about that. But they also said something else. When I read Habakkuk, for example, and I'm going to read this to you in Isaiah, they talked about, yes, after this day of judgment, there's coming days of utopia. There are coming days of millennial peace. There's coming days of of the reign of, of God on earth, and it will, be, it will be amazing, it will be spectacular, but before that great day of utopia, there must be many days of dystopia. For the earth, Habakkuk says, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Can you, can you wrap your eye, minds around that? There's coming a day when the reign of Christ here on planet earth after all these cataclysmic events of the book of Revelation, and Christ comes again, and He sets up His amazing reign here on earth. Look at, look at what Isaiah said, the wilderness and the wasteland shall be glad for them, 
and the desert shall rejoice and blossom as the rose. You say, that's impossible. There's no way a desert can blossom like a rose. Yes, you can happen when God does it. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice, even with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the excellence of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord. They shall see the excellency of, of our God. So this is the day of John's being reassured. Oh, let, let me read this out of Isaiah. This is, this is my favorite millennial utopian verse in the Bible. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. Now, in how many years mankind's been on planet Earth, 6,000, 10,000 years as far as mankind? No, I don't believe in millions and, and billions of years. So however long mankind has been on Earth, have you ever seen a wolf and a lamb lie down together? No, you haven't. Because I promise you that wolf is going to say, lamb chops, amen, it's going to be on. He's going to eat that lamb. That's what we do. Because we live in a predatory, violent world. We do. We just do. If you don't believe that, get a kitty cat. Those are the most predatory creatures on planet Earth. I mean, they just a little bitty things, and they just crouch, and, and they, just, they just want to pounce on some little mice or rat or whatever. I mean, it's, it's in their DNA. The lion will eat straw like an ox, really, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy the lion, the, uh, uh, the serpent, all these, the wolf they will not destroy in all my holy mountains, says the Lord, Isaiah 65. It is hermeneutically impossible to understand a large corpus body of material in the Old Testament if you do not believe in a millennial reign of Christ. Somehow, that's got to be fulfilled, and it will be fulfilled after these events here in Revelation. So you see the interlude. You see the divine pause. It's almost as if John gives us a chance to catch our breath. In this interlude, in this parentheses, in this pause, yes, we, we, we see all these things happening, but we also see there's coming a better day. And so let me go next to the word recommission, because this kind of unfolds the rest of the chapter, the word recommission, if you're taking notes there in your, in your outline. Now the key word here is in verse 11 where it says, and John, you must prophesy again. You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. And the way God does this with John is He gives him this vision of this great angel, this magnificent angel as we've already described him. And in the angel's hand, is this little biblion, this micro book, if you will. And, and I tell you, interpreters and commentators and people, it's, it's fascinating to read what people believe that scroll is. David Jeremiah, he believes that it is the same scroll of Revelation uh, chapter 5 that describes all these events, all of this outpouring of God's wrath. And he may be right, he may be wrong. Other people believe that that scroll is the judgments of God that is contained in the remainder of the book of Revelation, but it also contains how God reigns and God is in control and God's going to make all things new. And so that's why it has this bitter, sweet component to it. Does that make sense? It's bitter in the sense that there's going to be destruction. There's going to be hell. There's going to be an outpouring of, of God's awesome power, but it's sweet if you understand it. And if you believe and you repent of your sins, so it has this bitter-sweet dichotomy uh, to it. But why does John 
have to eat it. Did you see that in verse 9? He, said, he went to the angel and said, give me the book. And the angel said, okay, here it is. Take it. Now eat it. And it will be bitter and it will be sweet. And I wonder, as I ask myself, why does John have to eat the very book in the hand of the angel? And, and maybe the answer is, in order for John to be a good preacher and a good prophet of what has to come, he must first assimilate, he must first ingest and digest the very message of God in order for him to accurately preach it. One writer put it this way, he said, the eating of the scroll is a symbolic action. It shows in a very vivid and concrete way that the prophet does not, now listen to this church, this is so important. The prophet does not announce his own message, but he announces the message that comes from outside of himself. And so he takes this message. It reminds me of, of Aristotle. When you read Aristotle's uh, principles of rhetoric, some of you say, yes, I, I read that every, nightly. It's just fascinating to me. Well, let, if you haven't read it in a while, let, 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 me, let me summarize Aristotle's principles of rhetoric. You may see it on an ACT, GRE, whatever test. So listen to this. Aristotle said, whenever a good speaker speaks, he always has three ingredients. He has ethos, ethos. He has pathos, and he has logos. Now, these are hundreds of years before the time of Christ. And I'm watching John, and he has all three. And to me, my favorite preachers or my, my favorite speakers are people who have these three entities of rhetoric. And John has them. You say, tell me those one more time. What are those? Thank you for asking, by the way. Ethos means your essence. It is your character. It is what makes you believable as a speaker. If you have integrity and, and you, you believe in what you are saying and, and you, you speak about it and you also try to live it, then, then Aristotle would say, you have ethos about you. You have the ability to have believability because you really do believe in what you're saying and you are living what you're saying. And then the word pathos, which is really the word passion. That as a speaker, John, you, you have taken this book and, and you've totally ingested it and you're all in. You, you are very passionate about it. You, it. It's not just something that you get up and yeah, yeah, talk. You know what I'm saying, guys? Y'all have had lecturers, you've had university professors and college professors, and they get up and they're like, man, this is the last thing I want to do up here today is just give you this lesson on biology or this lesson on biochemistry or this lesson on math or whatever it is. No, I don't want to listen to them people. I want to listen to those people who are passionate. They have passion. They they're like, listen, I'm living it, and I believe it. I breathe it. It's, it's who I am. And then Aristotle says, you have the logos. You have the very message itself. And that's what John has. He has all three. He has, he has the substance of character. He has the passion in his voice, and he has the very message of God. And here's what God says. You got to speak it. Now, John, it's not going to be easy. There's some, there's some more times of judgment. There's more difficulty coming. But you have to speak it. You have to be a good messenger, and it's going to be bitter, and it's going to be sweet. Can, can we not agree that that's pretty much what Christianity is? It is bitter, and it is sweet. Most of the world would say Christianity is bitter because it has such an exclusive message to it. 
And by the way, Islam does too, and most, most religions do have an exclusive nature about it, but, but Christianity just seems to want, be the one that gets picked on. But, but it, it is bitter to many people. They are like, it, it's too myopic, it, it, like Oprah Winfrey, she said, it just can't be true. Absolutely, unequivocally, Christianity cannot be true because it says there's only one way to God, and surely there are many ways to God. And you say, no, Miss Oprah, I'm sorry, uh, it, you're wrong, and, and Jesus is right. Oh, goodness, that's just ridiculous. And, and other people say that. They're like, no, 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 no. Christianity cannot be the only way, and, and it's not really the way the Bible says it, that, that God is going to judge and then God's going to reign. No, let's look for another option. So Christianity is bitter. Let me give you another bitter pill to swallow. If you don't believe it, you're going to spend eternity in hell. Really? <laughs> Are you serious? No, 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 no. Tell me, tell me that again. If I, don't, if I don't accept God's Son and I reject Him, and I open my mind and embrace all the other religions in the world, you're telling me, Mr. Ph.D. and M.D., you're telling me, Mr. CEO, you're, you're telling me God's gift to humanity, you're telling me that I'm not going to go to heaven, I'm going to go to hell because I've rejected this God-man, this, this man crucified on a cross, you are out of your mind. I'll never believe that. It's bitter. It's bitter, but oh, to those who believe, it is sweet. It is sweet as honey. It is sweet. You know, Paul said this. He said to some, the message of Christ is the very fragrance and aroma of death. But to others, it is the aroma and the very fragrance of life. And 2 Corinthians 2, 15, 16 means so much to me this week as I'm reading this and I'm preparing this message and I'm praying over this message because, listen guys, in postmodern intellectual uh, Austin, I mean Athens here, right here in the epicenter of Texas, preaching a message like this, no wonder it's stealthily quiet at Great Hills Baptist Church. Why? Because it's bitter. Some of you don't want to hear it. Some of you are like, Brother Danny, can you give us the seven ways to prosperous living, maybe, you know? Maybe that'll put a few more people in here and it'll lighten the, it'll lighten the atmosphere a little bit, no? What if it's true? What if Christianity is true and I didn't tell you? And what if Jesus really is the only way to God and I didn't tell you? And what if there really is a hell and nobody ever told you? Shame. Shame on me. So it has this bitter dimension to it, I get that, but it also has a sweet dimension to it. And the key operative word to me in Revelation chapter 10 is the word again. He says, you must, Mr. Centenarian John, 100 years of age, John's probably thinking, Lord, I'm about to come see you. Can you let some young whippersnapper take this on? I'm, I'm done. Just let me finish. Hey, I got ten chapters in. Hey, ain't that good? Let me just come on to heaven. And God says, no, I'm not through. Hey, some of you senior saints out there trying to slip on into heaven, just cruise on by, you can't. That's not an option for us. Us. Hmm. I like that. Us. I like that. You know, you, you turn 50, man, and just things starts going downhill. Listen, I don't want just slip into heaven and just kind of backslide in there. Man, I want to go roaring into heaven. I want hell to say, wow, that guy's finally dead. Amen. That's the way I want to go, and that's the way I want you to go. And if you're a senior saint, 
Man, roar into heaven. Don't, don't, don't slide in. So, Mr. Centurion John, come on now. You've got to say it again. You must prophesy again. Now, the word must, do you see it in verse 11? It is the Greek word D-E-I, die, not D-I-E, that's die in English. It's the word D-E-I, which is the word constraint, obligation. You remember when Jesus, yeah, who came up with all these radical ideas about only Him being the only way and going to heaven? Who came up with these ideas? That would be Him. He said, Nicodemus, look at me. Learned, erudite, academic, Pharisee, listen to me closely. Unless you are born again, you'll never go to heaven. In fact, Nicodemus, you, D-E-I, die. It's the same Greek word. You must, do you feel the fervor in it? Do you feel the passion in it? You, hmm, I hadn't thought about that till right now. Man. Hey, thank you, Lord. I just had a thought. Was there ever a person who had ethos and pathos who was the very logos of God? Wow. It's Him. It's Christ. John, you must say these things. You cannot shut up. You must not back up. You, you, listen, eternity is hanging in the balance. They'll never hear it. They'll never know unless you record the remainder or the rest of the story. Let me catch my breath here for just a second. As I was studying this text this week, I, um, I kept adding to it, and I'm like, goodness, Danny, if you don't quit adding, it's going to last forever, so quit adding. You know, be at peace, it's over. Close the cannon, it's over. You know, just, just preach what you got. But I couldn't. It's like, it's like something in me kept saying, tell them, tell them this. They may not believe that. It was like God was, God was pleading with me, saying, please tell them this. Tell them, I was reading Ezekiel chapter 37, the, the valley of dry bones. And in many ways, that's the way I see the church in America. Is we're, just, we're just lying there, lifeless corpses. And I was sharing it with, with a couple of guys this week, and it really is a comedic, comic moment there when, when God comes to Ezekiel and the great prophet, and he sees this valley, this massive corpse of just dead bones everywhere with no sinew on it, no flesh on it. It's just this wasteland of death. And, and the Spirit of God says, Ezekiel, again, again, say it. And the, and, the, and the Spirit says, Ezekiel, can these bones live? And I love Ezekiel's answer. He goes, he goes you know, Lord. He goes, I don't know. I, you, you know, but I don't know. And then he says, yes, they can live. Speak to them, ruah, the Hebrew word. Speak to them the very breath, the very life of God. Breathe on them. Speak to them. And when he began to speak, y'all remember that? There's a rattling of the bones. 
Man, I'd love to see that. I'm going to see this one day in heaven. God's got this big DVR, I'm convinced. He's got everything recorded, and he's going to say, here, it's where you wanted to see that? I said, yes. He goes, well, watch this. And then all those bones, they start coming together, and they, they rise up, and sinew fills the bones, and there's marrow in the bones, and then there's flesh over the bones, and then they're just standing there. And that's a lot of the way I see the church in America today. We, we're just standing there lifeless and listless, and we're embarrassed of the message of Christ, because it's bitter. And we don't want, we'll do anything but be unpopular and unsavory and unpalatable among our friends. So we just stand there, and God says, Ezekiel, watch this. He breathes life, and they come together like a mighty army. Oh, dear God. Would y'all not like to see that in America again? Would you not like to see the church of the living God come out of her slumber, come out of her intimidation, come out of her, okay, I just got to be politically correct, I got to be spiritually correct. Wouldn't it be great just to see a, a massive army of the church rise up, speak the truth in love, and be a mighty army for God? Oh, God, would it happen in my lifetime. Reminded me of 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul told Timothy, he said, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. It's this reoccurring theme here. John, say it again. Ezekiel, again. Timothy, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all patience and teaching. For the time will come. I think the time has come. When the people will no longer endure the sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And these teachers will turn people away from the truth and turn them aside to fables or entertain them with stories and fables, because the truth is hard. I, I appreciate, by the way, you praying for me, and I know you do, and I, I appreciate it because I need it. I need to keep preaching God's Word. I need to say it in love. I, I needed to hear this message. So thank you for praying for me. In 1902, there was a lady named Adelaide Pollard. Who would name their child Adelaide? I have no idea, but that was her name, Adelaide. She was a writer of Christian uh, hymnody, and she felt God's call upon her life to be a missionary. But she couldn't, because she couldn't raise the money. And she was devastated. A true story. Adelaide Pollard went to a prayer meeting, and a group of Christians were praying, and really she didn't want to be there because she was mad at God. You ever been there? You ever been mad at God? I have. Guess what? God can handle it. He can handle you being mad at Him, so it's okay. She's mad. And she goes there, and she's just kind of in her spirit. She's just like, God, the dream of my life is to be a missionary. And you will not let me be a missionary. God, what is going on? And there was this little old lady. God bless these little old ladies. She prayed this prayer. She said, Lord, it really doesn't matter what you do with us. Just have your own way. And Adelaide Pollard said, I can't believe what I just heard. 
God, it doesn't matter what you do with me. I am very dispensable. But have your own way. So that night she went home and she wrote these words. She said, have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Thou art the potter. I am the clay. Remember that? Mold me and make me after thy will while I am waiting. Yielded and still have thine own way, Lord. This the lady is a missionary. She wanted to be a missionary. But God, you said no. And so a lot of times I like to write this hymn, Have Mine Own Way. You know what I'm saying? You ever sung it like that? Have my own way, Lord. Right here, you listen to me. I'm going to have my own way. Have thine own way, Lord. Have your own way. John, prophesy again. And maybe John said, Lord, I don't know if I want to. Maybe I've had enough of judgment and wrath. And, and, and why? Why does the angel say again, again? Have your own way, Lord. Search me, try me, master today. Whiter than snow, Lord, wash me just now, as in your presence, humbly I bow. Now, here's my favorite one. Man, I'm just a mess. Hold on just a second. Have thine too, too high. How does, this, how does this thing go? Have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. Listen to this part. Wounded and weary, help me, I pray. Power, all power, surely is thine. Listen to this. Touch me and heal me. Savior divine. What is God telling you that you cannot quit on? Yes, this is a message of, of reassurance, but this is a message of recommitment. This is a message about rededication, recommission. Did John have this sense of, Lord, I'm almost 100. Hey, could you just let somebody else do this? Because, by the way, come next week, chapter 11, it's going to be on like Donkey Kong again. It's going to be strong. It's going to be fierce, and, and it's going to be intense. And, and I wonder if John just says, Lord, could you give me a reprieve? And it's like, no, again. One of my favorite presidents was Harry Truman. Some of you are like, he was a Democrat, you heathen. <laughs> he was also a Southern Baptist, so whatever. I like Truman because he, he's a little guy. He really wasn't that big. He, he's a little Baptist Missourian. And, 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 and David McCulloch's book, by the way, I think every American should read Truman. It's, it's, the, it's fascinating. And it tells the story how Truman just goes to the, the big Republican convention, and this is the way they did it back then. They would have these, these barroom conversations, and then they'd just finally decide, well, we're going to elect you. And then they're like, oh, no. And then, and then they put them all on the ballot, and then you, you take a vote, and they didn't get enough. You take another vote, take another vote, take another vote. Well, the next thing you know, 
Truman is elected as FDR's vice president. That, 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 that was just mind-blowing. He, he was the most, he was very surprised, okay? Most of the country was surprised that Truman was elected vice president. So on April the 12th, 1945, when FDR dies in office, guess who becomes the president of the United States? The little Baptist Missourian, Harry S. Truman. Can you imagine having the responsibility to release the atomic bombs on Japan? You said, yeah, but that was FDR. No, it wasn't. That was Truman. Can you imagine going to Potsdam and meeting with Joseph Stalin and confronting him and doing business with him and battling with him after the war? Can you imagine Felix Daly just a few years after that, 1950, sending our guys back into war? That would be Truman. And Truman had responsibility after responsibility after responsibility, and he made those hard decisions as a politician, and everybody was convinced that come next election, Surely he will be defeated because he's made so many hard decisions. America's had enough of that little Baptist from uh, Missouri, and everybody just knew that Dewey was going to win uh, the, the next election, except Truman. He kept on his little whistle-stop tours. He'd go all over America, and he was sharing his message of hope and his message of, of reconciliation, and he was, he was preaching that message like a little preacher stumping across America, and everybody was like, Truman, you're stupid. You will never beat Dewey. Dewey is a machine. And so his little train comes into St. Louis, Missouri, and they, and they give him the newspaper, the Chicago Daily Press, and it says, Dewey defeats Truman. That's what the newspaper said. But guess who won? Truman won. And when he got back on the train and he made his way to Washington, D.C., there were 700 and 50,000 Americans waiting on their new president and saying, welcome to your second term. I think whether it's politics or sports or business or church, God help me, the victory goes to those who do not quit. The victory goes to those who do not stop. And I want to assure you that there are times in Christianity that you are wanting to stop. In 1995, I almost quit the ministry. I came this close. I've never shared this story. I almost quit the ministry in 2003. These are happening in 10-year intervals, so <laughs> it's true. I was so tired of the fighting and the Baptist politics and the, the rhetoric, the accusations, and I was just about to get my Ph.D., and I remember going to some friends of mine and saying, I said, I'm done. I'm going home. And home was not go see Ashley and our three kids. Home was quitting and going to Alabama. Whatever Alabama had to offer, it had to be better than the ministry. And my wife, she said, you can't. She said, you can't. 
2003, same scenario, and I was dealing with some stuff, and I deal with my own depression and my own responsibilities, and nobody puts more pressure on me than I do. And I remember Dr. Patterson meeting with Ashley and me, and he goes, are you guys okay? Your marriage okay? And we're like, yeah. He even asked us, how's our nocturnal liaisons going? <laughs> Judy, <laughs> if y'all don't know what that is, ask your parents, they'll tell you. And we said, we're good there too, thank you, but thanks for asking. But then we went on down to Georgia, and my friend Johnny Hunt for two days just poured into me and said, listen, you can't quit. You can't stop. God's put too much in you. He's invested too much in you. you you've got to keep going. So if there's anybody here that can relate to this, I, I, can, I can relate to it. It's okay to be tempted to want to stop. But we just can't stop. We have the message of the gospel. Mr. Reddington, we have the hope of the world in our hands. And it is a bitter, caustic pill to swallow at times because people do not want to hear it, but it is absolutely honey-sweet because it is the truth. And you may be here today and you are tempted to give up, give up on your marriage, give up on your church. Oh, my word. I wish people would be as loyal to their church as they are to their football teams. You may be tempted to give up on your God. And I'll close with this, my favorite scene out of the Count of Monte Cristo. He says, priest, I don't believe in God anymore. And the priest said, but he believes in you. Let us pray. Your heads bowed and with your eyes closed, I, I want to encourage you as a, as a fellow sojourner, a fellow struggler, that if you're here today and you're hurt and you're tired and you're wounded and Christianity's not all it's cracked up to be and you're ready to slip on out, would you hear the voice of the Spirit of God say one more time, again, again? Would you look with me in Ezekiel 37 and hear the voice of the Spirit say, prophesy again? Would you hear Paul tell Timothy, preach the Word, don't give up, be ready in season and out of season? Christianity is so hard it must be true. It's so against the grain of human nature, we have to have supernatural help to do it. It must be true. How many of you here today can say, have thine own way, Lord? Have thine own way. Or how many of you are like me and oftentimes you say, Lord, no, 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 have my own way. Have mine own way. Maybe it's a day of recommitment. Maybe it's a day of recommission. Maybe it's my day. Maybe this whole sermon is for me not to quit, not to give up. So I can encourage you not to quit, not to give up. 
Some of you are here today, and this is Christianity 401. This is not, this is not entry-level faith. We're not an entry-level church. We're just not. We, we get into the deep stuff, the heavy stuff, and, and we're really into discipleship. And if you're here today and you'd say, that, that's what I want, I, I want the faith to be able to stand the onslaught of the temptation and the difficulty and the, and the messages and the competing voices that I'm hearing in my mind. Would, could, you, could you tell me what God says? Can you tell me what the truth of the Word is? And, and that's what we want to do for you. Can I pray for you? Can you pray for me? Father in heaven, we just come before you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we thank you that you have raised us up, Lord, for such a time as this. Lord, there is a battle going on for the soul of our great nation. There are skirmishes and battles going on for the soul of this great church, and there are battles going on within the individual souls of people who are here today, God, and they know who they are, and probably many of them are in their 20s. Lord, they need you. They need you. God, they need you to tell them again, again, be faithful. Lord, I know I need to hear it, and I thank you for the prayers of your people. Lord, we're going to pray as we wrap up this invitation that if there's anybody here today, God, that's on the precipice of quitting, that God, they would, they would get back in the fight. They would get back in the arena, whether it's their marriage whether it's their church, or whether, Lord, it's just their faith. Lord, I pray that you would, uh, I pray that you'd help our counselors, Lord, our, our deacons, our pastors, and Lord, there may just be some transparent parent moments here at the altar where people are really struggling. And they would say, pray for me. Lord, I pray that it would happen, and I, I pray that your will would be done. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me quietly to your feet? God bless you. Thank you. If you can, stay with us a few more minutes. I'm going to ask Terry to... I knew they were going to sing that song. So let's sing the song, and man, this altar is here, and if you want to come and pray, and come on, if you don't, then don't, but I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray at the altar. Terry, would you, would you lead us?